Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, good to have you with us as we start another week on the show. Of course, once again this week, we're uh, doing the show remotely. I'm continuing to uh, work from my home studio in the Decatur area. All of our panelists throughout the week will be joining us by telephone. And, of course, this is another week when we know we're going to have a lot to talk about in terms of the virus and also politics as well. I, I can't help but think that yesterday felt like a day um, that started with so many people uh, trying their best to have an Easter celebration cut off from many friends and family not being able to go to the churches that so many of you want to be able to celebrate the holiday at. Uh, and then last night, uh, after a day of sheltering in place on one of the most important religious holidays in the calendar, uh, so many people across the state, especially in North Georgia, uh, were uh, struck by tragedy as this line of severe thunderstorms and tornadoes came through the state. We, Our hearts go out to the people up in Murray County where five people uh, died in the tornadoes that came through there. Murray, just in case you don't know, is right up hard against the Tennessee border. And if you think Dalton, just go a little bit east from Dalton, and that's Murray County, Eaton, Chatsworth, uh, bigger communities in Murray. We had apparently tornadoes down in College Park by the airport. And then I think we had one death in Bartow County as well. So, you know, it felt like piling on, didn't it? We're already dealing with uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, and then a, a night of uh, terrible weather. So uh, here at GPV, we're thinking about all of you uh, today. Um, let's just very quickly, before I introduce the panel, go over some of the figures uh, that we've gotten from the state. As of 7 o'clock last night, we now have 12,550 confirmed cases of COVID-19. Uh, and we've got confirmed cases in just about every one of the 159 counties across the state. We've also had uh, now a, uh, a total of 442 deaths. That's up 30 since we were on the air Friday. But, but here's the um, more promising news. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, of course, the Emory University infectious disease expert who's become a ubiquitous presence uh, in terms of talking about the virus, uh, said a Friday that the state seems to be performing better. Remember, he was very critical of the governor early on for not shutting down the state sooner than he finally did. The state seems to be performing better in containing the virus in recent days than some of the modeling suggested. Del Rio says that's a sign that severe social distancing is helping Georgia avoid the exponential growth of the disease. His quote is this, instead of seeing one day 10 patients, the next day 20, the next day 40, the next day 80, we're seeing one day 10, the next 12, the next 14, the next day 16. That may not sound like an improvement, but he calls that a huge difference. Uh, he says, it's still a matter of work, waiting for a hurricane to hit you. You just don't know what's going to happen in the days ahead. It might be a Category 4. It might be just a tropical storm. So 
uh, some fairly good news uh, from one of the observers, a medical observer of what's been going on in uh, the state. All right. Uh, that said, let's get to our panel for today uh, and uh, talk about COVID-19 as well as some politics. Uh, this is, after all, Political Rewind. It's Mondays, which means Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. Uh, we have we have a dog, so we had a kind of a sleepless night for everybody. But uh, yeah, but uh, we we fared better than a whole lot of people north of us. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, I think uh, we too in our household uh, were kind of alerted all night to see what might happen. But I'm glad. I'm glad you're safe and sound. Uh, also from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution today, their investigative reporter, one of their investigative reporters, Carrie Teagarden, joins us. Carrie, we've got a lot to talk about in terms of a story you filed for yesterday's paper. We'll get to that in a minute. But thank you so much for being here, Carrie. Thank you, Bill. I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about what we've been hearing and trying to dig into over the last week or two. Absolutely. Um we also are going to talk some politics uh, today, and to do that, we have uh, Representative Terry Anulowitz, who represents Smyrna. Terry, uh, we haven't talked to you since this whole thing started. How are you holding up with your family up there? We're, we're doing well. We're healthy. The kids are doing online learning. It's funny. I was thinking about it. The last time I was on the show was a month ago yesterday, and it was crossover day, and a lot changed since then in Georgia politics. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's safe to say. Uh, also with us today, Eric Tannenblatt. He is one of the uh, best known and most highly respected Republican insiders in Georgia. He's uh, He was a f former chief of staff for Governor Sonny Perdue. He's also worked in presidential politics, being a close uh, associate of uh, the entire Bush family in their pursuit of higher office. And he worked with Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney as well in the 2012 presidential race. And Eric, we haven't seen you or talked to you since the virus hit. I know that you have both of your sons home from uh, the East Coast, and uh, you and your wife must be very happy that you're all together. We are. We are. We are happy. We're safe. And we're playing a lot of board games. <laughs> well, you know what, Eric? What it, send, send me, you know what, send me a note. In fact, I'd invite anybody out there to do it. So Eric, after, at some point, send me an email about the board games you're playing. I think it would be fun uh, to post on, on my personal Twitter account uh, just what games people are playing out there. So, so let me know uh, later on what you're doing. I want to put a big plug in for, for, for Catan. I've never played that, and I'm now uh, addicted to it. <laughs> All right. Well, send me some information about it. I'd appreciate that. Uh, also, one quick program note, and then we'll start our conversation. Governor Kemp, uh, Public Health Director Kathleen Toomey are going to be holding a news conference. It's scheduled to start about 4 o'clock this afternoon. We'll be carrying it on GPB Radio and GPB TV, and it'll also be available on our social media platforms, our Facebook page and uh, our website. Um, all right. Uh, uh, Carrie, I want to start with you because your piece in yesterday's paper uh, finally put some specificity to some issues that I personally have been struggling to understand for weeks and weeks now, which is what information are we lacking in this state that would help us as citizens 
understand more about what's happening with the coronavirus would help us uh, perhaps understand what's going on in the neighborhoods that surround us um, and, and give us a better sense of where we're heading. So with that in mind, let me read you just a, a, a short piece from the story you wrote and then let you talk about it. You and Brad Schrade uh, worked on this piece together, and, and here's what you said. Giant healthcare systems based in Atlanta refuse to say how many coronavirus patients they're treating at their dozens of Georgia hospitals. They won't reveal how many of their frontline workers have gotten sick or even died from the virus. Nursing homes, assisted living facilities aren't required to post information about outbreaks, and until Friday, the state had not been revealing which homes have had the most cases, leaving families and advocates in the dark about the conditions inside homes they're now barred from visiting. While the governors of New York and Ohio are giving detailed daily briefings broadcast live, Georgia's governor has given only sporadic uh, updates, periodic updates to the public. And you go on to say it's incumbent on public officials to provide clear, consistent messaging from consistent sources and to explain what they know and they don't know. That's a quote from Matthew Seeger, a public health communications expert at Wayne State University in Detroit. Okay, you already knew that you wrote those things, but I wanted to make sure our (laughs) listeners heard about them. So, Carrie, just start us off by giving us a broad uh, look at exactly what you're reporting and what the consequences of it are. Well, Bill, from the the very beginning, of course, you know, we're starting to reach out to our sources when this happened. People we've covered for years, in my case, decades, um, at Atlanta's hospitals, you know, and in the governor's office and the Department of Community Health, all these people who have information. And from the very, very beginning, getting information out of Atlanta's big, giant hospital systems has been very difficult. Um, We had heard early on, you know, Wellstar had the first death at its Kennestown facility, and we'd heard that they had more cases than others from day one, very beginning, refused to tell me anything about their cases, and it it got kind of testy. You know, they're a public hospital system, okay? Um, it's a nonprofit organization that runs primarily public hospitals. I had it continued almost daily until Saturday, continue to have a discussion with them about that. You know, we were able to reveal in Sunday's story that a, a respiratory therapist that had worked at one of their hospitals had died. Um, but they continue to not tell us how many people have tested positive um, or how many patients they have. And that's consistent across that. Uh, Meanwhile, other hospitals do tell us that. So other hospitals primarily outside of Atlanta, with the exception of Grady, which has been transparent on your show and elsewhere, um, has talked about it. Um, Finding out what's going on with nursing homes and and long-term care facilities of all types. As you know, Bill, um, Brad Schrade and I spent a year writing about that industry. We were very concerned from day one, and we're just pulling our hair out, trying to get information from the Department of Community Health. Where? Where are these, you know... How many cases? Where are these cases? Um, I mean, it has been so frustrating, in part because people can't visit their family members right now in these facilities. They are just in a panic to try to find out what's going on. And if the facility isn't extremely open, they don't know. The state has finally started giving us more information, but it's very dated. You know, on Friday, um, they would tell us about facilities having 20 cases, and we would know, find out, you know, by by reporting it that, well, there were actually 70 cases. You know, it's such a lag time. 
So I would say across the board, we're having difficulty getting information that, that we feel the public should know. Sometimes, I don't know if you guys have felt this way, when people do tell you what their cases are, when some of these hospitals in Augusta, Rome, have told us what their numbers are, it's actually reassuring because it kind of speaks to what Dr. Del Rio has said, that it's not, they're not completely full yet. I think that's what we want to know. Are you, are you guys completely full? Are you putting people in hallways yet? You know, you want that sense that um, things are okay. Or if you have a family member in a, in a long-term care facility, you want to know what's going on. And we haven't even started talking yet, Bill, about the lack of detailed information about the positive cases in Georgia where we're having trouble getting detailed information about the basic demographics um, of the folks who've tested positive and have died. Jim, why don't you jump in? Yeah, yeah, Carrie, uh, help me understand here. Is it is is it the where is where is the where is the 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 uh, the, the blocked uh, blocked plumbing here? Is it is are these uh, medical institutions are they informing the state and the state is refusing to pass the information along, or are they not simply informing the state? Because no, if it's that latter, yeah. if it's that latter, that would be very dangerous. They are informing the state, at least that's what we're told. I mean, they were told that they, you know, have to inform um, public health and um, Department of Community Health every day about what their numbers are. So, you know, we were, I mean, I had a very uncomfortable situation right when this first began where, you know, the governor's office kind of put out a, a, a kind of subtle news release that was, Sort of the message was, don't put too much pressure on these facilities to release their information. They're under a lot of pressure to do other things. And um, that really rubbed me the wrong way. I, I just, you know, it's, but the, the, you know, I think the contrast is that we are seeing hospitals, you know, I get a daily report from one in Augusta saying, here's how many cases we have. Here's how many tests we did. Here's how many came back negative and positive. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we're not getting that granular information. The state will release total number of hospitalized, but it's cumulative. So the hospitals themselves really know um, exactly what's going on in real time. The nursing facilities know what's going yeah, on let in me, real let time. Me. And, and one of the things, Terry, one of the things that the reporting uh, by the AJC uh, reveals to us is just how uh, rampant the coronavirus has become in some of our nursing facilities around the state. And, and this notion that, that people cannot go visit the relatives who are in these uh, homes, that, uh, that, that the homes are working to contain the virus. At one point, uh, the AJC, Terry, quotes um, the, uh, one of the commissioners in the uh, uh, Athens uh, Commission uh, the Athens uh, uh, County Commission uh, saying how frustrating it is that we can't get this kind of information uh, so people have a better sense of exactly what's going on. Terry? No, it's incredibly frustrating because I get calls and emails regularly asking pretty specific questions. And I, I, so I'm following the Georgia information, and I've also been following the information that Mississippi provides because my, I'm from New Orleans. My parents left New Orleans, um, which is a pretty major hot spot, to go to a house they have in very rural Mississippi. They left about a month ago to isolate there. So I check the Mississippi stats every day or so just to see how things are faring in their extremely rural county. And Mississippi gives you, you know, they have 
the map with the counties, just like Georgia has. They have the the table that has, you know, which county, how many cases, how many deaths. But their table has a fourth column, which is how many long-term care centers have outbreaks. And that's useful information. Then you go down a little further on the Mississippi page, and it gives you, you know, the same trends and summary data that we have in Georgia. But then you get a bar graph with the cases by race, the deaths by race, and a third bar graph that gives you all the deaths with the underlying conditions. And this is, you know, and then they have another another bar graph with age groups. They have pediatric reported cases. They have hospitalized cases by age group. They have so much information that I don't have access to in terms of for, for Georgia. So when I get these calls about folks who are wondering, you know, which facilities have it, which all I can do is give them this, this very top-level guidance, which is, well, you know, we're recommending that no one visits these homes right now. But that's it. And it is, it's extremely limiting and it's extremely frustrating because I think it's important that the public turns to elected officials that they can trust. I think it's important that we are the ones who are giving information so that folks don't turn to other sources to get information about this, whether it's social media or hearsay. I think that's one of the things that's going to prolong this is having a lack of clear information from the very top. So, Eric, um, let me bring you into the conversation. Um, I, I, I think that uh, uh, Governor Kemp and especially Kathleen Toomey, his public health director, have been uh, making some efforts to communicate as much as possible to the people. And the governor's office would say that they feel they've, they've done a lot of uh, good communication. Um, but I, I guess the point here is that being able to communicate clearly and honestly and accurately in a crisis like this is a real test of leadership. We've watched Governor Cuomo in New York just soar in the approval ratings up there for a guy who was not very well liked in his own state uh, because he's been so candid and forthcoming. On this show in the last week, we had the mayor of Albany, Bo Darrow, uh, talk very candidly about his situation. We had the CEO and chief medical officers of uh, Phoebe Putney down there talk very candidly, give us all the numbers they needed. And we had John Halpert, uh, the CEO at Grady, do the same thing. Uh, but don't, do we have a right, Eric, to have more as much information uh, given to us as candidly as possible? Yes, but you. But the public has the right to have accurate information, and that that's the challenge. I I, I do think that Governor Kemp and uh, Commissioner Toomey have been communicating, but the 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 thing you don't want them to do is to communicate with inaccurate information. And you know we are, we're we're a unique state in terms of our size, in terms of we have 159 counties. Uh, it's easier for one hospital in southwest Georgia, which is the predominant hospital system, to be providing data because you don't have multiple hospitals. So you can get better data for what's happening uh, in, in Albany and probably to a lesser extent Augusta. Augusta is a little bit bigger. But when you talk about Metro Atlanta, you have so many different hospital systems. And when you're talking about nursing homes, you know, a lot of that reporting has to come from the actual nursing home. And so... There's data that's coming in from so many different places that, uh, you know, I think after the fact, we'll, we'll, we'll have to put, you know, look back and see, you know, what worked, what didn't work. But right now we're in the middle of a crisis. You have to balance what you do. And look, last week I was on two or three calls where Governor Kemp, you know, speaking to different groups, and Governor Kemp was over-communicating. 
But I go back to my first point. The, the, the worst thing you could do is put out inaccurate information. And not every one of these facilities, whether it's a hospital or a nursing home, is providing the exact data at the exact time. So at one point in time, you can get a clear picture of what's happening. This is just a fluid situation. And I think we have to give some benefit of the doubt that our leaders are, are doing the best they can. Now, that's not saying that the public doesn't have a right to know they do, but I think we have to cut them a little bit of slack right now because there is a major strain on the system. Hey, hey Bill, Gary, I want to jump you in. Weigh in. Oh, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, I will, I will take Eric's point on this. Except, I would also add that at the state capitol, uh, usually the 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 regulations and the laws governing these the uh, uh, healthcare uh, healthcare institutions, uh, nursing homes, they're designed to protect the institution, not the people who use the in- institution. Uh, and and so there is a there the it is the, the the reporting reporting requirements are 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 tilted toward uh, the people who own the nursing home the people who operate the the the, the operate the the public hospitals. Carrie, why don't you jump back in and 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 give us your response to what you're hearing? Well, I, I just think we know there's detailed information out there that could be released. And it's a decision um, on the part of these Atlanta hospitals not to release it. And I think that's creating um, panic and or discomfort even among the people who work there. You know, we get calls from people, people's family members call us who are going into these facilities every day. And they're very concerned, you know, and they hear about even their own colleagues who are becoming sick. And the idea that hospitals don't want to talk about that is um, doesn't feel right to them, right? It feels like, you know, because they're in also at this time being asked to walk into battle without the proper protective equipment, right? They're, they don't have the masks and gowns that you're, they're used to having that they've been told before all this happened that the normal protocols would apply of changing your mask every time you come out of a room of somebody with an infectious disease. So they're very concerned, and I, I don't think it serves them well um, with their own employees, which is thousands of people in Atlanta. Um, as far as the, the long-term care. care facilities, even the state long-term care ombudsman, her job and her all of her folks around the state is to advocate for residents they're having trouble getting information as well. That that doesn't feel right, especially at a time when I cannot go visit my family member who's in a facility. If, if the family member is able to communicate on the phone, I think that helps a lot. But um, as we know from our reporting, at least half of the people who live in these facilities have um, some issues around dementia. The communication isn't always easy. And there is just so much anxiety. Why wouldn't we, you know, err on releasing as much information as we can? Some of these, again, like the hospitals, some of these facilities are putting on their websites every day all their detailed information. But many others Let me, aren't. Tara, I know, Terry, Terry, you want to jump in, I know. Yes, I do. Thanks. The, um, to Carrie's point about how you know, she's hearing from employees of some of these facilities or loved ones of people who have loved ones who work at these facilities 
I'm hearing the same thing. And I know I'm not the only elected official who's hearing from from folks who are worried and scared about what it is that they're facing when they go into work. And that honestly becomes a way, you know, to Eric, to Eric's point about how what a crisis this is and how much information is coming out and coming in and, and, and you know, folks are trying to do the best they can. I don't disagree. And I, frankly, I think it's a waste of resources. If somebody comes to me because they heard a rumor about a case that were an outbreak of COVID somewhere where their daughter works, and then I'm trying to run it up the chain to the contacts I have in the governor's office, and we're trying to figure all these things out, that's a waste of time that would be better spent elsewhere. And I think, you know, to, again, to Eric's point, we're all trying to make the best decisions we can make with the information that we have. But without more specific information, that decision-making power is extremely limited. Yeah, I, I want to jump in uh, and respond to uh, Eric. You know, Eric, I, I understand your your point about um, what that the governor's office has to rely on the institutions to do the reporting, and as Kerry points out, we hope they are. Uh, I don't think the AJC article suggests that this all rests in the governor's office. I think it's quite clear from what Kerry and Brad uh, discovered. It's that it's individual institutions like a Piedmont healthcare system which simply don't want to report out right now. And I'll add one thing and then let you uh, 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 speak to uh, again, Eric. I, there was one moment in their article that it's, it, it, it was heartbreaking because it, it gives us a macro view of some of the unwillingness to report and the impact it can have. At Wellstar uh, uh, Systems in Paulding, at the Wellstar Paulding Hospital, uh, there was a report that filtered out through social media that a respiratory therapist, I think it was, uh, had died of COVID-19. The hospital would not uh, report that employee's name. And it was only when the wife of the employee uh, went public and said it was her husband, Bill Gilbert. He was, uh, it was announced on the website of his church where he served as a pastor. And, and Gilbert's widow, according to the reporting from uh, Carrie and Brad, uh, you know, talked about him. He was 78 years old. Uh, he decided he, he was going to work, in t- but, but couldn't continue working during the pandemic because he was too old. And within days of his last, last shift, he fell ill and was diagnosed with the virus. Now, that's a very personal story, Eric, but it does tell us something about the fact there are things happening out there, both heroic, tragic, and also troubling, that we're just not hearing enough about. Eric? No, there, there, there's no doubt, Bill, and, and I, didn't want, I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that I don't think that you know, the public should have information. I, I guess my point is that this is a lot more complicated than just issuing information. I mean, our healthcare institutions have to follow HIPAA guidelines. Not everyone who is, is, is dying of suspected COVID, we've been able to determine that they actually did have COVID because they didn't have tests. So there, there, this is a lot more complicated than just saying the hospitals aren't providing information. It could be that some of the information is not appropriate for them uh, to, to release. I mean, we are in the midst of a crisis that we have not seen before. And I think what we need to do is identify all of these issues while we're in this crisis that we need to address when we come out of it, which we will come out of it. 
but I think it's it it, it could be a it could take away from the crisis at hand right now if we're we're becoming too critical of of what our strained healthcare systems are trying to do right now. Uh, Jim, you, we got to get to a break, but before we do, yeah, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah, I just want to say, you know, the, the, that that Wellstar Hospital in Paulding County, that's just down the road from me. I mean, I can get there in three minutes. Just as a member of the community, I want to know if the hospital that is closest to me uh, has, has a problem. Uh, I think that's important information for me to know. Yeah. Um, I want to try one more subject, Jim, before we have to take a break, but it's an important one. Uh, it was not covered in this particular article that Carrie and Brad wrote, but it's one that I know everybody's been working on in the journalistic community. It's the matter of testing and how many tests have been conducted, how many test kits are available. We've heard President Trump in his daily briefings uh, brag about the fact that we've done more tests in the United States than any other country, that tests are broadly available for people. Uh, and yet at the same time, we hear governors in various states saying they're not getting enough test kits to do the job properly. I'm still not clear here in Georgia on where we stand on test kits and how many. I mean, we, we get numbers on how many people have been tested, but I'm finding it very hard as a journalist to put my arms around this and grasp whether we have a shortage, how big a shortage it is. Do you, do you understand my point, Jim? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and quite frankly, I mean, the, the level of testing is something we should all be, be concerned with because that's going to be the key to, to, to uh, determining whether we're let out of our homes uh, any time in the near future. I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's something that we, we need to have and we don't need, you know, uh, we need somebody to help us understand what forms of testing are, are being done. Uh, whether whether we're we're talking about uh, re the reactive test to, to to test those who are who are already being have been affected, infected, and and survived, uh, it's it's uh, it's crucial and and we're not we're, we're not getting uh, we're, we're not we're not getting all the the information we need. I would point out one one more thing, Bill. This this economic uh, downturn, the, the just this this sudden crash that we've got. Uh, at the same time, we're needing, we're requiring more information. We have got, we have got uh, uh, some very, very venerable news outlets that are that are that are tightening up, that are that are all that are that are, that are really shrinking uh, the the number of reporters out there who can gather up that info. And that's also uh, you've you've got the Marietta Daily Journal uh, going to to five days a week, Forsyth County News going to two days a week, Gainesville Times going to two two days a week, and these these are these are outlets with reporters who are are, are asking these these very questions that you are. All right, let's do this. Um, I'm way late to get to our first break on the show, uh, but thank. All right, now Sam tells me we can take the break. We'll do that. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Eric Tannenblatt, Kerry Teagarden, Jim Galloway, and Terry Anulowitz with us on the show today. Uh, Jim, I'd like to turn to another uh, subject, a very controversial one, in uh, not just in Georgia, but really coming out of the White House as well right now. And that's how we're going to handle 2020 elections, uh, in our case, starting with what is now our June 9th primary elections, but carrying us all the way to November when we'll uh, have a presidential election and two U.S. Senate races in Georgia on the ballot. And Jim, what's going on here is fascinating because even as a Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, uh, declares that he is hoping to encourage as many Georgians as possible to vote with absentee ballots, uh, sending 6.9 million applications for ballots out to people across the state. Uh, he's also saying that they're going to start a law enforcement task force to crack down on potential voter fraud. You hear the president saying that uh, absentee balloting, mail-in votes, uh, leads to fraud that benefits Democrats. Uh, here we go, Jim, uh, trying to have a Democratic election in, a, in an atmosphere of, of a pandemic and partisanship. It's, uh, it's, gonna, it's a very troubling issue, Jim. Yeah, it, it, it really is. Uh, and especially when you, I think there are six states that rely heavily on mail-in voting right now. Uh, Utah is one of them. I don't find it particularly liberal. Uh, I think, I think uh, uh, Mitt, Mitt Romney might agree with me. I, I will tell you what, the, 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 the little bit of history that I, I've been focusing on lately is the, the 1918 uh, Spanish, Spanish flu, uh, which there's a good deal of evidence saying that it started actually in Kansas. Uh, but in, in any case, it, star, it, 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 it did hit Europe early, early in 1918. It didn't come to Georgia until October, October 1918, just before elections. And so, you know, you've, you've, got, you've got Dr. Fauci and, and a bunch of other people saying that, yes, we could get through the, this, this hump uh, uh, in, by May, maybe even by, by early June, and yet it could come back again uh, with a vengeance in the fall. And that's that's the part that worries me because primaries look primaries are intra intra party fights, you know it, who who gets an edge in a Republican party uh, fight doesn't matter to a Democrat and vice versa. General election those are that's that's an existential balloting right there. That's where things are going to get really tight. Eric, um, the president, as you well know has said on a couple of occasions that he doesn't like mail-in voting because he believes, without any evidence that I'm aware of, that uh, mail-in voting favors Democrats. And you actually had uh, uh, Speaker Ralston, David Ralston, making a similar comment, which he then kind of backed away from, saying that he was concerned that uh, if you went to all uh, uh, largely mail-in voting, it would be favorable to Democrats as well. Eric, I mean, you're a good... You know, you are you care about Republican politics. You'd like to see most Republicans uh, win in in their races. Not all, I imagine. Uh, what do you think about this becoming such a highly partisan issue, where there doesn't seem to be much foundation for this concern that it favors one party over the other? Well, it's un it's unfortunate that we have uh, a lack of trust uh, in the system, and it's on both sides of the aisle. This is not a, a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. And, you know, unfortunately, 
because of the situation we find ourselves in. And I, I hope that next fall uh, we're not we're in a better place than we are today. But, you know, circumstances may require that we have to do things differently. And, you know, look, the, the political consulting class has figured out how to do get out the vote, you know, for their respective, you know, candidates that they're working for. You know, for years, we've had absentee ballot campaigns where absentee ballot applications were sent to people of your of one particular party and chaser calls were made to make sure that that person sent that in. So I, I'm I'm not concerned that, you know, from a political standpoint, I think each of the parties will do what they need to do to turn out their voters. I think the most important thing we all should be fo focused on is the fact that everyone who has the right to vote should have the right to vote. And, you know, we're in uncharted waters right now, and we obviously need to protect the integrity of the system. But I think we need to try and take the politics out of it if we can. Terry, it's interesting. It, it was the state Democratic Party uh, led by Nakima Williams, Senator Nakima Williams, who, in fact, when Raffensperger first announced he was going to send out this massive mailing of absentee ballot applications, who not only did they not discourage absentee balloting, Nakima Williams said she liked the idea. She just wanted to make sure that everything was handled in the appropriate way. So I, I do. it does feel to me like the partisanship in terms of the issue of whether absentee ballots favors one party or the other, it, it's Republicans who seem to be attacking the idea of absentee balloting more than Democrats. In Georgia, that seems to be the case. And, and, and it is, there's this interesting variety from state to state in terms of how they're approaching absentee balloting and how their different political parties are approaching absentee balloting. But what is concerning is that, you know, we, we're we're hearing talk about how it might impact the different parties, but that seems to lose sight of the actual essence of the issue with absentee balloting, which is how does it impact the voters? And I think right now, the voters would be very, all voters of all party of voters, Georgians would be very positively impacted by having wider access to voting by mail. And it's, a little disturbing that that seems to be getting lost in a lot of the the overall conversation that we're that we're hearing about this. You know, the Speaker Ralston was quoted in a New York Times opinion piece yesterday, with with you know, he, in terms of his remarks about how damaging absentee and voting by mail would be for for that party. But I don't. I think that's missing the point. I mean, I, I think I think that. What is the least damaging? What is the most safe way for people in Georgia to vote? And right now, it looks like that's going to be vote by mail, certainly for the primary, but also probably, like Jim said, for the general election in November. Hi, hey, Bill. Jim? This is Eric. The, the, one thing I'll add: the, the okay. bigger problem I see is uh, the processing of these absentee ballot applications and the absentee ballots themselves. I mean, we don't have a very good track record in this state with some of the county election. Uh, you know, offices uh, doing uh, an accurate job. And I, that that's where I would probably have the most concern. Uh, Jim? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, what was one of the more interesting things in this, in this debate uh, happened last week up in Jackson County, up, up, up 85. Uh, it's a, a, it's a heavily Republican party, 82% one for Kemp in, 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 in 2018. Uh, and this, and the the elections board there uh, went to uh, immediately uh, 
uh, that they endorsed uh, an entire shift to voting by mail, uh, not just for the primary either. I think for the for the for the general election as well, and and the the knee jerk reaction from the from the chairman of the the local Republican Party was you know uh, he wanted he 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 wanted the resignation of the the Republican appointee to that board. It it it's it, it, it is kind of very disturbing as Terry was saying. Uh, just to, to to see that this, uh, I mean, this was this this had nothing to do. This had everything to do with protecting the voters and the people who who the people downstream who would be uh, uh, be hurt by uh, by coming in contact with so many people. Uh, Carrie, it was in the middle of last week that Brad Raffensperger finally gave in to an enormous amount of pressure that was coming from his own party, uh, from all the Republicans in Georgia's congressional delegation. Uh, plus many other Republicans saying you've got May is not you can't do it May 19th. You've got to move it later than that. Raffensperger kept insisting that he was going to go ahead with the May date. It, it struck struck me that it wasn't just coincidence that Raffensperger decided to make that move after watching what happened in Wisconsin just the day before the horrifying scenes of uh, people who really had no choice if they wanted to exercise their right to vote, but to stand in lines for hours trying to cast ballots because uh, the uh, uh, Supreme Court, uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court, Republican officials in Wisconsin, uh, did not agree with the Democratic governor to move the date of that primary. That was the clearest indication that is that there is huge partisanship at play here as we try to execute this democratic process, Carrie. Um, Bill, you know, I don't do uh, too much on politics, so it's not uh, uh, for me to really weigh in on that. I think but the idea of people standing in line close to each other is um, very concerning. Like, who wants to do that right now? I, I think you're quite right. Um, Jim, let, let's do this. Um, let's move. Let, just give us your final thoughts on this. Let's take our fa- last break of the show, and then we'll uh, come back with a couple of more topics. Yeah, I, 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 you, you spoke of the Wisconsin situation. I think one of the images that we're going to be left with for years to come is the, uh, is the speaker of the, the Wisconsin Assembly uh, in a, in a, at, a, at a precinct in Wisconsin uh, saying it's perfectly fine for people to come out and vote, and he is in in total scrubs. I mean, from the gown, the the gloves, uh, the the mask, uh, but it's perfectly fine for people to come out. Yeah, it was a it was a, a a an image. I think you're right that we'll live with this for a long time. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. We got some more politics to talk about on the other side. You're listening to Political Rewind. All right, Eric Tannenblatt, I'm going to give you a chance in real time, excuse me, to respond to an endorsement that we've just seen come from a uh, member of the Georgia Republican congressional delegation. Drew Ferguson became the first Republican congressman in the delegation to uh, turn away from Governor Kemp's choice for the U.S. Senate, Kelly Loeffler, and uh, has now backed Doug Collins. And his quote was, 
uh, that Republicans should, quote, unify behind Doug and leave the distractions and uncertainty of other candidates in the rearview mirror. Doug is a proven leader, a steady hand in tough times. Um, Eric, how dis- how how is the whole issue of Kelly Leffler's uh, stocks, when she buys, when she sells, who's in control, who's not? Uh, it does feel, Eric, like this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue and is becoming more divisive within, divisive within Republican circles. Do you see it that way? Um, I, I, I don't. Uh, I think that her actions last week, uh, you know, will put it to bed for some people. I think if you're supporting Doug Collins or if you're uh, a Democrat and supporting one of the other candidates, Uh, in the race. You're going to try and keep uh, the issue alive. But uh, I, I, I really don't think, I think, I think Senator Burr's situation probably made uh, uh, Senator Leffler's situation uh, uh, more prominent, but I think she has uh, taken uh, the right actions to move this behind. I think too, that right now uh, political junkies are following all this stuff. But the general population is so focused on the on the coronavirus crisis we're dealing with right now, dealing with their own jobs, their own family. Uh, I don't think they're paying that much attention to it. I'm not surprised by Drew Ferguson's endorsement of Doug Collins. The you know the Georgia congressional delegation uh, sent, uh, tends to uh, you know line up and, and support one another. I, I remember going back to the governor's race in 2010 when. Uh, the delegation all lined up behind, uh, you know, Nathan Deal when he was running for Congress, with I think the exception of well, actually Tom Price, and then he, he changed his mind. But I, I think that uh, you know they they're colleagues; they, they serve in the House Caucus together. But I, I think that as, as the year progresses and Kelly is Kelly Leffler is a sitting United States senator, and she continues to provide the level of constituent service and representing, you know, Georgia voters in Washington. I think this will uh, be in the, in the rearview mirror. And, you know, her, her opponents will try and keep bringing it up. But, you know, I, I think Senator Leffler has, she's been definitely someone who has uh, not uh, been asleep at the wheel. I mean, she has been out there working. I keep, keep running into people that have heard from her. She helped that couple come back to Georgia last week from Florida. She was delivering food at the hospitals to ICU and ER workers. Uh, she's been, you know, doing what you want a United States senator to do. And I think those are the things people are going to really remember. Terry and Ulowitz, um, it's certainly true that what Eric is saying, the Democrats will continue to use this to attack Kelly Leffler. But you don't even have to look to Democrats to attack her. All you have to do is turn on Fox News and see... Uh, so many of the commentators there who uh, really have never wanted Kelly Leffler to be the uh, choice in Georgia and continue to be highly critical of her. I was going to say, I think that the Democrats are the least of Kelly Leffler's problems right now. I mean, I, it's not, I'm, I'm hearing something, you know, I hear from folks and, you know, other Democrats I know, and it's, we talk about it in a, in a, you know, a combination of horror and and resigned eye rolling because it is so it's like of course you know this is this is this is this is the level of absurdity that this whole thing has gone to from the very beginning when you had these so you want to be a senator portal to now where you have the senator who won that contest and she is 
doing things that are pretty egregious. And I, and I think there, I think Eric's right. There is an element of inside baseball to this, but that's not going to last for very long because I think this will be a centerpiece of a lot of the ads that are going to be targeting her, but those ads aren't going to be coming from Democrats. They'll be coming from the other Republicans and particularly Doug Collins and the other, um, the PACs that are supporting him. I want to be careful about something, Carrie. You said she's been doing things that are particularly egregious. Are you referring specifically to the stock transactions, or yes, are you talking about yes, more? And, and, do, yes, and, you're, and that is, I, I broke the number one rule of Dr. Cousins back at Agnes Scott. If you say this or things, say what those things are, say what this is. And yes, I'm talking about the stock okay, transactions. I just, Thank I, you. <laughs> okay. Okay, I just I always want to be clear on that. Jim Galloway, weigh in on this. Yeah, a, a, a couple things. Uh, number one, I, I'm going to disagree with Eric. I don't think it is going away uh, because as long as people have a a, a, a 401k that has that has taken a big hit uh, this year, that 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 issue is going to be uh, alive. On the other hand, I, I do think that she did exactly the only she did the only thing that she could have. Uh, that, that that she could have done in which in 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 declaring that she and both she and her husband are going to be putting their money in index stocks uh in in uh, i guess the equivalent of mutual funds because the whoever wins this US Senate race is going to the, is is going to be the candidate who who's, who's, who persuades voters that I am riding it out with you that's to me. That's it's. It's going to be. You're you're going to need a message of solidarity with the average voter who has taken a hit. All right. Um, you get the last word on today's political rewind, uh, Jim Galloway. Um, we're almost out of time. Uh, so, Jim, thank you. Uh, Carrie Teagarden, thank you. Uh, and your reporting yesterday was. Um, just it, it really was helpful to a lot of us. Thank you for the work that you and Brad did on that piece. Eric Tannenblatt, always good to talk to you. And he, you too, Terry and Nolowitz. All of you, please, I hope you stay safe in the days and weeks ahead. Just a quick look at what's coming up this week on Political Rewind. Tomorrow, uh, Dr. Patrice Harris is going to join us. She's a Stone Mountain psychiatrist who is the current president of the American Medical Association. She's going to join us to discuss her observations about how the medical community is dealing with the virus and the political community as well. On Wednesday, we're going to look at the reasons for the disproportionate impact of the coronavirus on African-Americans. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman has been very concerned about this. We're also going to have DeKalb County's Public Health Director, Dr. Sandra Ford. Then a show I'm really looking forward to. On Thursday, Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe, who is the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University, is going to join us to talk about the ethical and moral questions posed by coronavirus. That should be a really, I hope, fascinating conversation. That's it for us today. Remember, Governor Kemp, 4 o'clock this afternoon, a news conference to talk about coronavirus. We'll carry it on all GPB's platforms. See you tomorrow.